Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the COVID global economy to you. And we're spending some time in Japan this week. The world's third largest economy has done much better than most at containing the spread of the coronavirus, but a lousy job of protecting women workers from the effect. It was Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's signature initiative to boost the economy by bringing more women into the workforce. And he was, eight years on, finally making progress. But COVID-19 is turning the clock back for women in Japan, just as it is in many other countries. We'll have more from economy reporter Yuko Takeo in a few minutes. But first, I wanted to have a brief chat about creative destruction, the bold economic experiment, which always sounds like a brilliant idea, just as long as it's happening to someone else. Now, some of you will know the phrase creative destruction was made popular by the Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter. The idea is that great things can come from disaster and governments shouldn't stand in the way of that process by rescuing firms that would otherwise go bust. As I say, it tends to be really popular with everyone except policymakers who are right in the thick of a crisis and companies that are themselves about to go bust. But it has taken on particular resonance in the Covid crisis because we just don't know how much of the economic destruction we're seeing might be creative in the end and how much government should be doing all they can to avoid. US Federal Reserve reporter Rich Miller has been thinking hard about this and he wrote an interesting piece for Bloomberg with France economy reporter William Horobin about the potential differences between the US and Europe in this area. He's with me now to discuss it with Eurozone economist Maeva Cousin. Welcome, both of you, and thanks for joining me. Rich, I guess you should just explain uh, the, the premise of your piece. What are you setting out to talk about and, and, and maybe just give us a glimpse of the conclusions that you drew? Sure. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, the US traditionally has been seen as being better able than Europe to reorient its economy after recessions. It's It's got two advantages, one in the labor market. It's easier for companies here to fire workers. Uh, and then two on the sort of uh, going bust. Uh, the bankruptcy courts here tend to be friendlier to entrepreneurs, so it's easier to go bust and then come back and start restart a new business. So as a result, most economists see see the U.S. as having a leg up in the, uh, in the creative disruption business, so to speak. But uh, as you as you alluded to, you know, this crisis is, uh, you know, perhaps like no other in the side of the speed and the severity and maybe even more important, the tremendous uncertainty. So we don't really know. uh, We never know completely, but but even more so now, it's hard to know whether, you know, if if a firm goes bust now, is it viable in the longer term? And is it just sort of going bust because we have a temporary collapse in demand due to COVID? And if, you know, six months from now, you that Vietnamese restaurant on the corner would be a viable enterprise once we get a vaccine. And that's the, uh, the conundrum that uh, policymakers are grappling with. Do you think, I mean, Maver, just just turning to you, would you recognise this contrast between US and Europe? I mean, we definitely tend to think that it's easier to fail and start again in the US, um, 
you can go bankrupt certainly more easily. Do people worry about that in the current context that it's not going to be easy enough for people to fail and then reinvent themselves coming out of this? Yes, I think that was uh, one of the reasons. I think the cost associated with recreating existing businesses, existing job relationships, the matching between uh, the workers and the vacancies is higher in Europe generally. So it made more sense to try and protect those relationships and those businesses as much as possible so that the, this reset up cost could be, could be lowered and could be avoided. There's more red tape, there's this problem of restructuration which is not as smooth, and there are different attitudes from the public as well on the role of government and how much government should protect people against um, the economic risks and economic hazards. So I think all that together meant that there was both uh, a lot of um, some economic sense in, protect, in protecting more and a lot of political willingness to protect more. So yes, I think different, very different setups could explain some of the different emergency reaction to the crisis. But I guess, I mean, Rich, if you look at how the US has responded to this crisis, they have, in a sense, tried to make uh, the US sort of less American in the sense of, you know, try and reduce the number of, of bankruptcies and reduce this kind of destruction, maybe out of fear that it's it's not so creative. I mean, how how much of a contrast is there on things like bankruptcies relative to past recessions, at least so far? Um, well, so far on, on the bankruptcy front, the, the bankruptcy filings uh, are actually down about eleven percent, you know, year over year, and and that is generally ascribed to you know all the programs and all the you know huge trillions of dollars that the government is pumping in, not only for consumers but 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 also to give uh, 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 so that they have money to go and spend at these companies, but also for the companies so themselves. So just so just to be clear, there's fewer companies than normal. I mean, than a year ago are actually going bust, even though we have this historic recession. Thus far, I mean, you know, we, we have a big question mark now over what comes uh, next when when the stimulus that uh, this huge amount of stimulus has put into the economy. You know, there's a big question mark here in the States about how much of that, how much more the U.S. is going to put in. I guess there's also a question in Europe, too, about that. But uh, uh, And there's a fear that you will see bankruptcies. And even in a normal recession, bankruptcy filings go up by about 50%. That's in a normal recession. And the fear is that if you had sort of let unbridled creative destruction go, you you, you would have got clogged, I mean, really clogged bankruptcy courts. And and that would, would also hurt the economy. Maeva, how do you think that European governments are grappling with this dilemma? It, it, strikes me we're at a different stage of the crisis now when it comes to the economic response. You're not just trying to fill the hole. I think we've talked about it in the past. You know, you look at the hit to incomes that you think is coming from the virus and you're just trying to match it to get money to households to try and keep the economy afloat. But now we're at a point where you're trying to encourage growth and also perhaps encourage businesses to adjust to a situation where we still have social distancing, where we haven't got rid of the virus. Um, have we seen that affect the programs that people are, or how long programs last? I mean, certainly in the UK recently, there's been an ongoing debate about how long that furlough scheme, that job protection scheme lasts, and actually it's supposed to still 
expire in October, even though a lot of companies feel that they will still need support from the government in October and will probably have to lay people off if it's not if their wages aren't going to be paid by the government. How is that trade-off being managed in Europe, in other parts of Europe? Yes, we are starting to see some shifts from protection to something that is maybe a bit closer to reallocation or thinking about reallocation. So uh, if you take the case of France, for instance, the program, the furlough scheme, has been made a bit less generous for employers already. And uh, starting from October, it will be made less generous for both employers and employees so that employers are encouraged to decide what they want to do with their uh, workforce. Either they take them back or they actually decide that they may not need as many people as they used, as, as much staff as they had before. But also, if the program is less generous than it used to be, at the moment it's a bit more generous than unemployment benefits. So if it becomes less generous than unemployment benefits, then it creates an incentive for people to start looking like becoming unemployed and looking for a new job that they may not have had with those uh, very generous schemes. So we are seeing that. Also, clearly, they are still maintaining some safeguards. So in France, it will be possible for employers uh, to negotiate with unions and the administration to have a longer-term plan where they can stay on this more generous scheme. But for that, they will have to have a plan on how they see the development in employment, how quickly they will bring back, bring back people. Do they need to restructure? Do they train people for new jobs and things like that? So this is a progressive, gradual shift, but that's going that's going on. In Spain, for instance, they are playing more with the incentives. So if you are starting to bring back more workers, then it's more like a wage, they are thinking about wage subsidies. So going from retention schemes to wage subsidies. If you start bringing back more workers, then you will pay less of um, social contributions for the entire workforce and things like that. So it's a, it's a, it's a difficult balance they have to strike because they have invested, they have bet a lot of money on, on this, and now they want to make sure that actually they don't um, lose everything by removing support. Um, but they are playing by the year, and they are moving um, step by step, depending on the evolution of the situation. But how do you think, I mean, overall, do you think they're still at the stage where they're going to err on the side of protecting too many jobs? Or, you know, if you're looking down the track and thinking, well, it could be 12 months that the economy is operating seriously below potential and a lot of these businesses are not viable in that environment where we still have COVID-19, do you think they should still err on the side of protecting jobs or should they be thinking a bit more about how to help people reinvent themselves? I think they will. They are clearly waiting for the summer to see, uh, and the tourism question is is a big one, and it's a big unknown. So I think they are really waiting to see. These schemes are expensive. I think they will probably keep a lot of protection initially, especially if they have some hope that those jobs will become viable in the near future. Um, the main limit to that, I think, in their view, will be the cost rather than um, the risk of impeding creative, creative destruction. But I think they will err on the side of caution for now. Rich, I'm going to give the, give the last word to you because I know how many, many, many years that you've been covering the US economy. <laughs> well, thank you uh, very through, much, Through Stephanie. thick and thin. <laughs> through the, and I, I wonder, 
I mean, it was, it's been such an extraordinary uh, amount of support coming out of the federal government, a lot more than we had in the global financial crisis, which itself was considered to be a pretty big um, fiscal, fiscal stimulus. Do you, do you see that the support for that uh, evaporating quite soon? Do you see it as a temporary thing? Do you think we are going to see America sort of shift back to a more sort of an ethos that favours creative destruction? Or or will we see that same kind of balance that Maver's talking about of people actually wanting to protect rather than have companies go to the wall? Yeah, difficult question. Uh, and obviously with an election coming up, that would also, you know, affect it. But uh, uh, I, 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 I think there would... Um, there would still probably be more. There, I think in the short term, and I think Maeve is right that they will, the emphasis will be on protection. Though, maybe perhaps in the in the in the longer term, uh, it might be more on on reinvention. But uh, there's a lot of moving parts going on, and and the U.S. is um, even both Republicans and Democrats are moving arguably toward in in a little bit more of the direction of industrial policy type. And that is not necessarily creative destruction. That's government sort of playing a bigger hand. Uh, so, but I, I would I would think the the U.S. ethos is still to, 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 towards more reinvention than protection, and that would probably, you know, um, win out so to speak in the longer run. I guess one other. Sorry, I was just thinking one other question one might have is whether. The U.S. has gone a bit soft. You know, we've heard a lot of talk about uh, big tech giants kind of dominating certain companies, and there being a lot less competition and maybe less creative destruction in those sectors. We've there's the the mobility numbers have gone down, so people seem to be less willing now to to, to change uh, to move across the country for a job as maybe they used to in this least with used to associate that with American workers. Uh, so is that is there a is there an element of that, Rich, that maybe it was never it was not really as creatively destructive uh, environment in the US and hasn't been for quite a long time? Well I think there's definitely an element of that that they you know that the um, the differences between the two regions may be may be less than is sort of commonly uh, portrayed. And if the Democrats win, you'll you'll have you know an emphasis more on worker rights, more on union power, which will tend to look a little bit more like the European model than uh, not anywhere near like that. But but you'd be moving in that direction. So the gaps between U.S. and Europe narrowing, and not just on this podcast. But thank you very much, uh, Rich Miller and Maeva Cousin. Thank you. Thank you. Now, that story I promised you from Japan, here's economy reporter Yuko Takeo speaking from a special location in Tokyo. COVID-19 has turned 2020 into a year of postponements, and Japan is no exception. I'm here outside Tokyo's Olympic Stadium, where thousands of visitors from around the world should have been enjoying the now postponed games and cheering on their country's medal hopes. 
But even without the virus, there's one goal Japan's male-dominated society never looked like achieving this year, filling 30% of leadership positions with women. Back in February, I'd met 50-year-old aspiring politician Motoko Mizuno at an event in the area of Kasumigaseki, the heartland of Japanese politics whose name roughly translates to the Gate of Mist. Organized by the Academy for Gender Parity, two female MPs were speaking there about some of the ups and downs they'd faced in the high-stress world of Japanese politics. Later, Motoko also told me about some of the gender disparities that exist. If you're a man going into politics, often there's a positive you-go kind of push for them. Their wife often helps them, and the manpower at least doubles. But when a woman like me tries to do the same thing, everyone says, don't do it. Unless political parties decide they want to increase the number of women, it doesn't really happen. According to the World Economic Forum's latest rankings of gender-based disparity in things like economic participation, health, education, and political empowerment, Japan ranks 121st in the world. That's below the United Arab Emirates and Sierra Leone. Only 10% of lower house MPs are women, and less than 1% of CEOs at companies listed on Japan's stock exchange are female. That hasn't stopped Prime Minister Shinzo Abe from lauding his government's progress especially in the jobs market. The women's labor participation rate has dramatically increased under Abe's tenure. Still, the coronavirus has unwound some of these gains, revealing the fragility of the progress. In April, the number of working women fell for the first time in more than eight years. This is not only a Japan story. Around the world, the pandemic has hit women harder because they are more likely to work part-time or be on short-term contracts and they often work in sectors like tourism and hospitality, which have been worst hit. Back in March, I talked to 48-year-old Rumiko Osano, one of the more than 3 million women who joined the workforce under Abe's tenure. She started working part-time at a local bakery two years ago, after her youngest son started school. I thought it would give me a change of scenery, and we would need the money going ahead. My eldest is starting middle school, so we would need money for cram school. Those fees are expensive, so our outgoings are going to get larger. My younger son is doing more extracurricular activities as well, and these extra expenses of the two kids are a big weight on our household budget. Fast forward two months, and the Yokohama resident is no longer an example of progress under Abe. Instead, she is one of more than 300,000 women who lost their jobs in April and May. That was during Japan's state of emergency, when people were urged to stay home and work from home as much as possible. When the state of emergency was announced, the bakery was temporarily closed. We were supposed to go back once the emergency was lifted, but without any revenue, the bakery, like many others, wasn't able to open again without a downsizing. The bakery's closure came as a shock, but Rumiko's looking for new part-time work, and she's happy that her two sons can now go to school again. 
When the pandemic prompted school closures, the burden of more childcare fell on women more than men. While that mirrored developments in other nations across the world, women in Japan were already carrying a higher burden than in other advanced economies. Among couples with young children, Japanese wives spend six times the amount of hours on childcare and housework than their husbands. In the US, France, and Germany, the ratio is roughly only double. Rumiko says she's happy to have been able to watch her sons grow up, but she's also had to basically be a single parent for years when her husband's job first took him to Shanghai, then another prefecture in Japan. It was toughest when I was sick. My parents don't live that close, so there was no one I could rely on. The first year after my husband moved to China, I was really sick, and my youngest was about one year old. That was the toughest time, and it was difficult that my husband wasn't there when I was ill. But in a different part of Japan, Motoko, the woman I'd met at the politician's event back in February, has been trying to represent people like Rumiko. That's a tough road, given Japan's female representation in parliament ranks 135th in the world, according to the World Economic Forum. Motoko built her career in the field of aerospace, and she beams when she talks about space. She worked at JAXA, Japan's version of NASA, for nearly three decades, and is planning on running for the next lower house elections. But as a working mother who has no previous ties to politics, she says it's not an easy ride. In Japan, it's difficult to enter politics unless you have a political family, fame or money. Right now, it's mostly men in this world, so unless there's a major support, you can't step in. Another challenge is balancing it with everything else. I'm running for office despite being a single mother, so of course people have a lot of opinions. I've worried a lot over that, but my conclusion is that I can't bear to hand over Japan as it is to my children and their generation. I can't stand it. When I pass it over to the next generation, I want to be able to do it with confidence. I don't want to say I'm sorry Japan is in this state. Please do your best with it. Tokyo Governor Yuriko Koike won re-election earlier this month in a race where she faced 21 challenges. But while she has garnered praise for her faster response to the pandemic than the Abe administration, she is one of only two female leaders in Japan's 47 prefectures. Kathy Matsui, vice chair of Goldman Sachs Japan, coined the term womenomics back in 1999. She has long made the economic argument for boosting female representation in both the public and corporate spheres. So based on our uh, analysis, if you could close Japan's gender employment gap and encourage more women to work full-time as opposed to part-time, you could lift Japanese GDP by as much as 15%, which is huge. Aspiring politician Motoko argues that more women in parliament will also have a host of positives. Policy-making that's more in tune with normal people's lives, better representation of women's concerns, and more innovation through diversity. What decides the core of Japan's future is politics. I finally realized this at nearly 50, after I'd lived for five decades. But if I'd realized this when I was younger, maybe I would have taken that path sooner. 
しなかったし特に女子がそういうことをっていうふうには。For Bloomberg News, I'm Yuko Taku. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on how COVID 19 is transforming the global economy. Remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Rich Miller, Maeva Cousin, William Horobin, and Paul Jackson in Tokyo. Lucy Meekin is the acting executive producer of Stephanomics, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. 